Hello and welcome to One Throw at a Time, a player's perspective on a game that builds and breaks our hearts. My name is Johnny Moss and I'm here as always with my co-host, co-conspirator, co-person, co-friend, co-teammate, co-everything, Rowan. Rowan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Beautiful morning here in Hawaii where I always enjoy coming here, visiting Dallas, my cousin, for a, a preseason kind of you know, not necessarily just a training trip, but more of a um, a debrief and a relaxation after a busy 2023. So I am on my vacation of the year, as you know, uh, really between, it'll be February 4th this year, maybe the Breeze Open trial, or February 11th, all the way till usually Club Nationals. Um, it's just completely packed. So I'd like to do a little preseason and postseason getaway. So this is me. I'm I'm in paradise, feeling good. And how about you? It, it seems like you don't quite have the 75 and sunny vibes going on in Arlington. Yeah, today it's a, a big snow day, our first snow of the the year. And last year, we basically only got relatively no snow. We got like 0.4 inches or something wild. So I think we'll we'll definitely surpass that just with uh, today's today's gale so it's been fun to have kind of a cozy day at home um but certainly not the hawaii weather um and yeah things are good here uh, mostly just you know staying the course training and and making sure i get my mental reset in the in the off season to be ready for what's to come that's quickly coming up uh pro tryouts and then of course team usa tryouts and then from there we're uh, we're off and running so there's a lot to get done, and Rowan, we have been delinquents on our mail on our mailbox. Uh, we've got uh, sixteen plus questions to go over today, so I thought we would just do a big mailbag episode and, and dive right in. What do you think? Yeah, these um, believe it or not, our first episode mailbag, and I love them. I love answering the user questions. So thank you so much for sending in so many in our in our time away from the mailbag and yeah actually they generally love answering kind of the Q&A style especially with with the co-host so yeah I think let's just dive right in um yeah what do we got today Johnny yeah so question one is from Sean um Sean asks you are thrown into a world where one seed gets to decide on the playing environment for the tournament with two knobs you can turn the first is amount of players on the field. So threes, fours, sevens, et cetera. It seems like any number is in play. And the second is the playing area. So like beach, indoor, grass, what have you. Um, and Sean is asking, what would be the most advantageous setup for truck stop? Rowan, let me run this one by you. 7v7 okay. on grass. Wow, that actually is probably the right answer we have hopefully optimized that but i think i would well one like real answer is i think you've even mentioned this before we would rather play on grass but truck stop is actually slightly better on turf because a lot of our throws are kind of off the first step which creates a little bit more separation so we do play better on turf very slightly in my opinion and I think I would go 26 on 26 on natural grass because, again, that's the best place ever. 
even though Sand really climbed the list this past season. I'd go 26 on 26, make it a truly team sport. Everybody's playing, plus there's more small space for me personally to thrive in, and I don't have to make the big cuts. Yeah, that's a scholarly answer, Rowan, and I think that it speaks to kind of the cohesiveness that, uh, and or should, I should say cohesion that Truck Stop um, is known for. I'm going 26 on 26, uh, no team better. So Outside the box, it, you know, it would be nice to play maybe like with a little less gravity so I could, could jump again, but um, I think that's, that's my final answer. <laughs> Yeah, that would be good. Um, and I think that, yeah, speaks to the team cohesion that Truck Stop has. We'll see if we can uh, we can set that up with, uh, with USAU for this upcoming season. Um, this next question is from Tony. And Tony was wondering if we have any thoughts on teaching or practicing intentional switching on defense. Um, this is something that they would love to incorporate more. Um, but not sure how to drill slash practice it. Um, any thoughts on that, Rowan? It is uh, it is certainly an important uh, topic that I've seen a number of different approaches to. Yeah, I think there's like really important spot, spots in the field where you can recognize that you have teammate help. You know, you can't really front an amazing deep cutter when they're kind of in the back of the stack because nobody's out there to help or switch. But if you're guarding that player and they're shallow and you see two or three friends or teammates behind that's the great time so how i would drill that would be you know just some one-on-one reps where you can kind of maneuver somebody a little bit deeper and somebody a little bit shallower and have the shallow defender kind of look back there to see hey can i front and if this guy goes or this player goes deep um switch switch off and then try to pick up an undercut and yeah i think just moving the the player deeper around to recognize when you can kind of go for that switch or kind of leave versus when you have to be tight because there's no help would be kind of the the trigger point for me Uh, anything for you maybe in the handler set uh specifically yeah, um, a good drill that I think is pretty simple to set up and, and really helpful, especially for teaching uh, that kind of concise and tight switching that needs to happen if the defense is going to stick together, is just have a line of folks run upline cuts and have like a defender purposefully fall behind on the upline um, and have them uh, work on bumping off of the mark. So like the person on the thrower will be uh, marking. And then when uh, one player who is getting beat up line says, roll, 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 that player can pick up the person running up line. And then the two players can work together, not only to contain that upline player, but also to um, work on sealing the now unmarked uh, thrower. So it's kind of like becomes a two person game. Um, where it starts off with a defender intentionally getting beat up line, them yelling roll early and often, that person bumping off the mark, picking up the person going up line, and then the two players who are on defense negotiating that space with one another um, to try to seal off any um, any options. So I think that that's a really good one to start with in the handler space. Um, and I think another thing to teach intentional switching is just to like work on a very uh, downfield is to work on a very um, simple bracket because that will not only provide a structure to what can otherwise kind of be an 
uh, an abstract concept in switching, um, but it will also help um, make sure that when it's implemented, players will naturally have to switch as their people sort of come and go out of their spaces. So I think those are probably my two uh, recommendations there. This next question is from Sarah. Um, do we ever get the chance to play mixed? And do we ever wish we got the chance to play mixed more often? What are our thoughts on it? Rowan, anything to start out? Yeah, I, I love mixed and I definitely will, will play um, a fair bit of mixed and do play mixed, just not in the kind of divisional series. Um, yeah, of course, like the dream would always be to play on the world games team, which is the highest level of ultimate, which is is mixed ultimate. Um, and yeah, I think I just have stayed in the men's division because just the competitive competitive nature, I think, is higher in women's division and men's division than the mixed division. And that's kind of been you know, very addicting. Plus, you know, I love my teammates, love love the people I've been working together with for the last eight, eight, eight nine years in DC. And it's hard not to come back, but like I love mixed ultimate. I'm a huge fan and I think it is really cool. So I'll I'll definitely play mixed and it's it's not everybody's route, but you know, a lot of people will play play in their division for a while and then kind of move into mixed. And yeah, I honestly look forward to to doing that. Yeah. Uh, I played mixed for Space Heater for two years, um, technically three, but one I didn't play in the series because I had a bad injury, um, and I really enjoyed it. I think that it's important as a mixed team to um, set your goals in terms of do you want to necessarily win every game, especially in the competitive scene, or do you want to play good mixed? Because I think sometimes those can be at odds with the way some teams win currently, especially in the Triple Crown uh, mixed competitions, uh, where it's been getting better year over year. Um, but sometimes it's a little bit frustrating to see just like men throwing to men uh, to like like big hucks uh, just to men to win those mixed games that that eventually get tight. So I think. I love mixed when teams can commit to playing good mixed, um, and I think that that's something that I want to see more uh, pervasive throughout, uh, especially the most heated competitions, because most of the time women are the best players on the team and they should be utilized way more, I think. Um, so I do like mixed. I think there it has some problems um, and I would love to at some point help uh, ameliorate them. Um, David Birdwell, our longtime listener and friend, um, yep. who I actually got a chance to meet at the the Beach Worlds competition. Um, he was playing for, for Team Mexico, which was cool. Um, David asks, what is a trick throw that you think has a place in competitive ultimate? Rowan, I will just leave this one to you. Yeah, this one is uh, dear to my heart. It's, it's just amazing to see, you know, I think the forehand may have been a trick throw at one point, and the hammer was definitely kind of a trick throw at one point. I think you know, in terms of something that hasn't really been um, or or is not really been throwing quite a bit, you know, I think, I think like the barbecue airbounds backhand might be a big one. I think uh, Markham Schaffner used to throw it a fair bit. And I just, if it's windy, 
it's a good way to kind of get and drive the disc like a short to medium range on the forehand side. So I think that throw can make an appearance. Obviously, the two I'm not going to count are the Oyo, that Oyo blade. I don't think, I think the blades are pretty much in, but maybe seeing that one on the backhand side is something that could kind of be considered a trick throw right now and something that Truckstop is using. And I think, I mean, I've seen Eric Taylor use it. But yeah, I would say either the barbecue backhand on the flick side or the kind of the Oyo backhand would be two that I think have uh, have a little bit more uh, brighter future ahead. Yeah, super applicable. Um, I'll leave it to Rose since he's the expert. Uh, next question is from Alex. Alex asks, what is your favorite in-game accessory to wear? And if you only had one kind of bottom, shorts, pants, compressions, whatever, for the rest of eternity, what would it be? Um, I think my favorite in-game accessory to wear is a hat. It helps keep the sun off my fair skin. Uh, and if I don't wear one, I get really, really scorched. So big time ups for hats. Um, and if I only had to wear one kind of bottom, I think it would probably be shorts. Most versatile. Um, they're great when it's hot. Uh, and when it's cold, you can kind of gut through the pain. So I would go with those two. I know it's pretty vanilla, but I mean, there's a reason why the fundamentals are fundamental. Rowan, what about you? Yeah, I think that, you know, that I think the visors is pretty important. Just um, We told all the history on the on the podcast way back but i started wearing a visor when i borrowed my mom's pink visor in like 2016 and ever since then i've kind of worn the visor truck picks it up and that's super special so i do love the visor like johnny i also get kind of crushed by the sun and i'm going hamstring sleeve as my accessory on the bottom now a couple of things one i know you can't really see it but there have been practices where it's like, oh, this is just a practice in the middle of this random rec center. No cameras out. Nobody's there. So I'll just pop the hamstring sleeve over the pants sometimes. And it looks horrible. Troy's definitely made fun of me for it. But, you know, it's it's got to be there. And, yeah, I think the, the hamstring sleeve is the most accessory, uh, more, most important accessory for me on, on the bottom half. I have had some some ugly cleats. People have been they've made fun of the Warriors. I've gone with the pants under the shorts for the USA tournament to stay out of the sun. So I might not be the number one fashion icon, um, but I do enjoy the functionality that that stuff brings. Yeah, that's a good answer, Ro. Um, and certainly functional. Next question, a little less functional from Miles. Miles, thank you so much for writing in. If you could add an attribute of one animal to your game, what attribute would that be? For example, the teeth of a shark for chomping at the disc or eight arms of an octopus for clamping as the mark. You can include fictional animals if you want, unicorn horns, etc. Um, I think for Miro, it would probably be uh, a unicorn's wings because then I could fly around the field. Oh. Um, and I feel like that'd be pretty tough to beat. You could basically just toss toss one way up in the air and I could go get it. That's huge, man. And then you're, the mileage, your legs would be taking so many cuts and so many change of directions. And you could play forever if you had wings. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think I'm going to go kind of the location from a bat uh this is 
you know, I never had great eyesight. And I used to joke that I just kind of sense where the disc was. But to actually have that ability to be flying blind out there, but to know where everybody is, where the disc is, I think that would be so cool just to play with. I don't really know exactly if it's their ears or how they do it, but uh, flying blind, I'd also be a fantastic night player. So in the pro game, uh, my game would step up and yeah, I think I'm going to go with, you know, being a bat out there and kind of sensing where everything is without even seeing it. Yeah, I think that that's a great answer. Refined, thought out. That's exactly what we do on this podcast, Ron. Thanks for on the fly. Yeah, it thanks was kind for of a, on the fly because you you went with the wings. So I was like, I was going to go wings for the mileage, and then I had to on the spot pivot to uh pivot to the bat. So it's uh, what's what do we got next? That was a fun question. What do we got next? Next question is from Adam Cohen, um, the uh, one of our friends at the AUDL. Um, how has your mental game evolved since you first started playing? What are some things you've learned along the way? Oh, do you want to dive into this one first? I know we this is up both of our house. Yeah, uh, and I appreciate you asking the question, Adam. Um, I think that... For me, I started playing not really thinking about my mental game uh, from like I started playing in eighth grade and through probably junior year of high school. It just really wasn't something on my mind because I had a lot of players around me who were kind of carrying the team and I was just someone who could slot in if I played well. It was an extra bonus, but folks, it didn't feel like folks were really relying on me as much. And then my junior year, I started to get a little bit better. Um, I had like made a U20 tryout and and that was the same one that Joe White talked about last week with all the wind. And I was, it was just fun to be there. Um, I knew I wasn't going to make it and I had another a chance at, at the cycle. So that was fun, kind of building my confidence. And then at States that year, I like threw a really bad turnover right at the end of um, our championship game and we lost. And that was like the first time that I had felt that confidence kind of wane and that I had felt like I had kind of let people down by not thinking more about my mental game. And I think from there through um, when I went to college, I I worried about that kind of thing. uh, And it started to kind of weigh on me like, um, what if I mess up? What if I do this? What if I do that? Um, And then at William & Mary, especially my freshman year, um, I was able to start leaning into the pressure and like leaning into uh, the just absolute joy there is and like finding flow in a high pressure moment. Um, and one of the things that Adam said is like, can I elaborate a little more on like pressure is a privilege? Uh, is that a motto for truck stop? It's not like a motto, uh, an official one, but I think a lot of people in their own way on truck, especially over the last few years when we really started to come into this kind of championship form is they've been finding their own way to sort of embody that motto. And I think the way that I've uh, started to approach it is I'm not a naturally very um, assertive person and I'm not naturally a very, you know, cocky athlete. Like I think honestly, like the cocky, the cockier and more confident of an athlete you can be usually the better, especially in ultimate, a sport that is, you know, sort of brings about these moments of of really high pressure very quickly. 
um, throughout the the course of a game or a tournament. Um, and I think leaning into that flow and and leaning into the pressure as something that has been earned and that has and that and that is a joy to to kind of experience um, is something that's worked for me in terms of cherishing those moments rather than trying to uh, kind of shying away from them. Um, Rowan, what about you? How's your mental game evolved? Yeah, I think um, I just got a nice text from Alexander Falls about my mental game, like um, right after, you know, Truck Stop does their feedback that we talked about in our New Year's episode last year. Uh, just kind of the team-wide give everybody some feedback and Alexon had some really nice words about it, especially my mental game, which oof, it definitely has evolved. I would say the the two sides of it, one, the, the mental kind of the IQ um, part it's just the game every year seems to slow down. It's just more natural when, you know, for example, when I started playing, I was always on the wrong side of my defender downfield. Like I couldn't figure out four side, open side, break side, like which side was I on? What was the mark? And just over time, as you play, that stuff that you consciously think about turns into a subconscious thing. Like you're just, you know what the right side is. You know where to be on a handler reset. And then what you start to do is you start to add more kind of things. And now you can start to see, oh, what the wind's doing. Or maybe you're now able to pick up who has the disc and these variables change. And the game slows down. You're able to grab more data points. And and that really helps you become a smarter player. So my game IQ, I used to be like one of the least smart players. I would just like run at the disc. I would just chase my player. And now I can think of a lot more things and becoming a smarter player has really elevated my game to the fact where like some injuries, but still keep improving on kind of the mental side of, you know, not just the IQs, the X's and O's, I would say realizing like the, the consistency almost and kind of removing a lot of bad plays, whether that's through, um, kind of understanding I like, hey, I don't have to do XYZ for Breeze or Truck Stop to win a game. You know, I just I I just don't have to do too much. I just have to take my the correct looks, use my legs, and just kind of going into a game, a tournament, a season with almost like um a strategy. And instead of just like I'm gonna go out there and wing it. When that when I used to do that, I I would throw this bad throw and then I would throw it again. Or maybe I was getting hot and I was hitting these throws and then I would keep throwing it and then I would turn over. And then all of a sudden that was like a, a game losing turnover. Whereas like the the next level of the mental jump for me, which I would say these last couple seasons, it's like no momentum doesn't change your decision making, your your you know, your decision making doesn't change because of these variables, like stick to the script. And that way, I don't know, that one has just really helped my my consistency. So that's a, a little bit more of the outside the box one. And yeah, I think both levels have really taken a step up. And yeah, I think that's a huge part of why I was able to kind of re repeat in ultimate is is the mental side of everything. So yeah great question and yeah we appreciate those ones yeah um this next question is from spencer goodfellow um spencer 
basically sent over a whole document full of questions. Um, so I'm just going to pick one. We really appreciate you engaging Spencer and we'll hope to come back to a lot of these. Um, but one that caught my eye that I thought um, would be a good one to discuss is um, any tips on how to become a more creative thrower who can hit more unorthodox spots on the field? Rowan, I know you've kind of undergone your own individual yeah. journey with this one, so it'd be great to to hear your perspective. I have the perfect answer. Now, some of these questions, you know, get a great answer. And this one is develop a lot of power early on as a thrower. And what that's going to do is now that you're able to put a lot of power onto the throws, that's going to start to allow you to change different angles and experiment with shapes. A lot of players. When they start throwing, they stand 10 yards away from their teammate and they throw these like kind of flat, accurate throws. So they think they're doing good. But that's creating such a bad habit of like a single flight path, a not a strong finishing disc. And it's and that's where you see like a throwing ceiling hit its limit. Develop the power, throw the disc really far and then start putting these angles and curves so you can throw like Johnny where if it's upwind, it's just this low laser IO that just goes straight, you know, where if it's downwind, you can now put a little outside in and bring the nose angle up. And it's, that's where the creativity shines. Like you can't be a creative thrower if you can't physically manipulate the shapes and the angles on the disc. And, and especially with, with the wind out there. So um, Johnny, you do it naturally. Do you like think about like, think about it the way I think about it or are you just kind of intuitive or anything else to, to add on top of my kind of mechanical answer? Yeah. Um, I think that that's a really good mechanical answer. Um, and one that I don't have a lot to add to, I think another thing that you can do that's sometimes a little bit low lift, if you're not looking to kind of beam things and, and work on getting power into it is just like, um, grab a pile of discs and like start by throwing an angle or a shape that you like would never have thought to throw or like would never have thought useful. That's kind of what I did in high school. I like really wanted to put work into my ultimate game, but I, I just sometimes like had worked out and was tired or like, um, had just had practice and like, didn't really feel like there was much to do from a physical standpoint. And like, uh, or I would have just thrown with someone. So I like got my normal reps in and then what was the extra that I could do? And a lot of that extra just looked like, you know, finding a soccer goal or finding something that could, you know, collect my discs, not scatter them everywhere. Um, and just kind of like start throwing blades at the goal, start throwing like upside downs that would like turn over and helix upside downs that would like blade really hard. Um, and on the flick and backhand side and just kind of like see what those shapes look like. And I think uh, a, an underrated part of, of shaping the disc is thinking about how quickly it will get somewhere. So like really focus on like, oh, when I throw it with this angle, it gets there so fast. And while that will probably be a bit of a riskier catch for the person it's to, the defender's never going to get to it. And then like thinking about how that calculus factors into your decision making um, I think that would probably be my my little addition to Rowan's answer, but it's a good thing to start thinking about. Um, and we wish you luck on your journey. The great thing about throwing is that everyone's got kind of their own way, and it's a beautiful thing to see how those synergize on the field. Absolutely. This next question is from Calvin. 
Calvin asks, is there a beach meta that's different from full field um, or was kind of the training that we put into um, into Team USA? Was that more for chemistry or is there like a different strategy on the beach? Um, I can just kind of answer this one very simply. There's a, a lot of different strategy on the beach, uh, particularly because players are not reacting to the their uh, marks or the disc as quickly uh, purely just because it's harder to turn around um, and so especially on offense I know Rowan and I can both speak to that uh, it's a lot less like setting up cuts and like chopping your feet and going the other way it's a lot more of like building momentum and button hooking building momentum and turning around um, learning how to find flow and work kind of the the sidelines of the field so that we can keep the middle open. Um, there's a lot of different, uh, as Calvin put, meta to it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the short answer. Rowan, anything to add? Yeah, I'll just I'll just add my like my specific meta switch because the coaches were working with me. You know, I feel like um, not that they trust, not that they didn't trust me on Sam, but they really rebuilt my game where essentially I've been kind of running a lot in the middle of the field. And they said, no, just literally stay wide on either sideline and then make just this one like sprint across when it's time. And that way, like you create a little separation and keep it on that cut. So my my game was completely rebuilt. That was one move. Um, Coach Tyler and Goose helped me out through all tournament put into my game. And then the other one that Tyler was specific on Tyler um, Kinley, our coach was saying after you throw just like start going deep as long as you're not cutting anybody off because that's another place where you can create a little separation and keep it so those were like the two specific changes that um, i needed to make to succeeding in on the beach and yeah just wanted to share like that was that was my meta switch yeah uh i think that that's that definitely mirrors my experience in a lot of ways uh very well coached team um this next question is from Gabe Webster, our good friend Gabe. Um, he asks, we have a bunch of players on Breeze slash Truck who use uh, OYOs and OIs to hit inside cuts a lot. Um, and he especially saw uh, Rowan bring it to, to uh, the storm uh, over in China in his latest video. Um, and it's obviously very effective when we get it right, uh, but that throw and catch requires a ton of precision. Um, so the question here is, um, how high would you prioritize developing the OYO when everyone's working on their throws this offseason? At some point, are club players going to be expected to have this in their arsenal? Should every youth player be doing it? Or is it kind of reserved for players who are already feeling like they've pretty much mastered throwing and want to stand out? Um I think my quick take on this is just that it's a very useful throw to have. Um, I think that sometimes myself included, uh, use on, use it as a crutch, uh, to like not kind of, you know, step out as far or, um, or kind of like manipulate a mark in a way that is a little bit creative and cutesy, which I think especially for youth players can sometimes, uh, build bad fundamentals. Um, and so I would say that it's an important throw to work on and have in the repertoire alongside other throws, alongside the, you know, 
the regular inside flick, around flick, same with backhand. Um, but I would treat it just as that, like another throw in the repertoire, not replacing, you know, the inside flick for hitting an, a cut coming um, to the inside of the mark or what have you. Yeah, that's a that's a good vision. Yeah, that's that's a great point, and kind of all I'll kind of answer it as kind of like a youth coach, um, where I kind of see it. And he brought up the storm video, which is obviously it was edited a little bit. Um, it was actually my two of my first oyos were were dropped, and that's that's happened when I've played with new players, or it's something that a lot of people don't calculate into that throw. Is it's it's a difficult throw. It's also a very difficult catch. And one of truck stop underappreciated skills is we have like so many people with, with great hands. So those are almost always caught. Now, newer players, youth players might not be as comfortable catching those blades. So I the answer is I wouldn't necessarily put that into your team strategy because it is too high risk. I would put that into like a skill development thing and just like maybe have a day maybe i'll come out over to walls and we'll just like throw that as a skill development because it does it teaches good hands and there's a level to the oil blade it's not like you're throwing an actual blade you're kind of just putting a really steep edge on it and throwing it with actually believe it or not a little bit of touch so it's there's multiple kind of throws that you see if somebody's only eight years away then you can like really kind of you know, bladed in there, but if they're kind of downfield, you have to really kind of just throw like an, a 45 degree touchy one. So there's such a, a difference in all these throws that I, I think at the youth level, you should just kind of work on developing people's almost like Johnny talked about in the last answer, just like these, all these angle changes to see what's happening and practice catching it. But yeah, I don't think I would put that necessarily cut into the game because it will be high high risk low reward <laughs> breaking the marks number low reward but it would be kind of high risk if your team's not all comfortable catching it um so yeah that's that's kind of the the coaching answer um, that that i deal with and sometimes with you know truck stop breeze the defense is like the best defenders in the world so the windows are smaller and ideally yes i think you want like a flatter throw that could be easier to catch but you don't always get that yeah, for sure. Um, Ro, we've gotten through all of the uh, sort of initial asks. Now I'm going to dip back in for some uh, questions from folks who have asked multiple. Um, so this one's from Tony again. Uh, Tony is wondering if we have any tips for starting a club team. Um, he's uh, played for a few years uh, and now is looking into starting a new team in his area um there aren't any currently um so they do have a large population of summer league players and people who travel to play other club teams uh and, and tony was just wondering if there's uh any tips we have for developing culture uh what scheme to use slash overall setup definitely yeah definitely gonna be you know um an exciting challenge is how i would kind of put it yeah i would just start by you know, seeing like, hey, who's interested in coming out, you know, once a week practice, that's like not just pickup, it's, you know, we're going to actually practice some skills, we're going to, you know, run kind of a, a system and build that into place. So I would kind of go out and test my feelers on the building kind of a leadership team, 
because that's going to do two things. One, it's it's going to be hard if yeah you take your team at 20, 25, and everybody has input. That's that's pretty tough to do. But if you start with like a leadership team and um, build up the idea, that's an important first step, and that'll also kind of show the community like oh who's going to be in charge of this team because the the initial team the the core members they are going to have a lot of impact on the culture and community so if you know you you want that you know amazing team get, get some amazing people in that leadership they might not have to be the smartest but they can be great communicators great leaders you know well respected players and once you have that core i think you can start to people can start to see like oh what what's this team going to be going to be about and yeah keep it open early you know i don't know if you need like tryouts if it's just kind of one team but you know, make sure people are invited, seeing what the vibe of practice is like, what the vibe on the team is like, and giving everybody a chance to to participate and and then start playing some tournaments and making tweaks. You're not gonna get it all right first time around. And you know, even if you have growing pains, that's that's better. That's a step up from you know, not no pains at all. Um, anything that I missed on that one, John? Yeah, I would just add, Rowan, that this kind of reminds me of uh of truck stops origin story, how they kind of started a team, uh, just these kind of this ragtag group of folks in kind of Maryland and DC area. And uh, they were constantly going up against this team called Potomac, um, where a lot of players who lived in the city traveled, you know, an hour plus to play with Potomac. And one of the things that they did to kind of shore up their ranks was like, recruit some of the key leaders on Potomac who lived in the city um, to play truck stop. And then they eventually all came. So I would say, um, if I were you, Tony, I would focus on, you said some players currently travel for other club teams, focus on getting those players bought in first to the team in the area. And then I think uh, the rest of the players who will kind of coalesce around um, those vets. So I think that that's, uh, that's just something to add. But I think Rowan's answer was, was pretty dang fulsome there. Good luck with your, uh, yeah, endeavor, uh, your, your fun challenge. Um, this next one is from Calvin. Calvin is asking um, about the feeling of being in the early stages of a club or college season, um, kind of like laying out for everything, having that dog in them, taking good shots, working hard on defense, but then almost losing that desire to do so about a month in. Um, it's not that Calvin feels burnt out. It's more that uh, he wants to keep playing and, and getting better, but is just feeling lazier since um, he feels more like he has his spot secure on the team, um, like he has you know, his role more secure. Um, what do we do to stay motivated and working hard on the field during long seasons? I can kind of start with this one. Um, I think Calvin, yeah. I definitely like have experienced this exact same thing, um, especially because like on offense, when you're on O-line, it's very rarely that they will like switch you completely over to D. Like sometimes things are things are getting bounced around. But for someone with my role on the teams I've been on recently, it's like I'm usually not going to get switched around very drastically. Um, so it's not something that I feel like I have to um necessarily earn as much each practice i can kind of focus on you know developing other parts of my game developing chemistry with teammates but sometimes that can lead to as you're saying like a little bit of a less inspired uh play 
Um, so I think what I do to stay motivated, honestly, is like, I obviously not quite as much, uh, but in a similar vein to, I think what, uh, Michael Jordan was like notorious for doing was like making everything a competition. And that's not really my vibe. I don't make everything a competition, but finding these little competitions in practice and with teammates and stuff that, that still feels healthy, nothing, you know, cutthroat, but like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to go every other on this one and show you what I've got or whatever. Um, I think that that helps me work hard on the field um, and helps me stay in the moment as well. So I would find those little competitions um, and that's what I would go for. Rowan, any thoughts? Yeah, I guess just like instead of like a, you know, my I'll just share my, I guess, personal thought of what I would do is I guess I wouldn't kind of consider like my carved out role or playing time as my like ultimate kind of test or goal on where I wanted to be. I think I would just, you know, always wanted to increase that, get a get a bigger role, contribute to the team in, in a different manner. Like if you're a D line cutter, maybe get better at offense on a turn. Or if you're like an O line star, maybe helping helping the D-line just like with your energy um, when you're off the field. So I think me personally would just either you know, set my set my sights, my goals on like a bigger personal or team goal. And then that always helps with kind of those motivations where if you like kind of hit all your goals and, and dreams, then I, I do realize like, yeah, there might not be a, a fifth gear that you're you're still on so yeah expand the expand the horizon get some bigger goals win the win the region win the national championship you know stuff like that and and that hopefully will you know you'll still have lapses but it'll still kind of keep you motivated in in the tough times yeah great answer rob uh, another question here from alex um how much does truck stop talk about looking reset and moving the disc quickly versus how much of it is feel um, how much do those conversations take place versus just having kind of a, a, a vibe mentality? Um, it's interesting where I feel like we talk about looking reset and moving the disc quick as like a way to get back to fundamentals, because when we're moving the disc quickly, uh, it's something that, you know, really helps our offense out getting those different angles of attack and working our quick feet rather than, you know, working those longer kind of puck passes if we don't need to. Um, so I think probably a lot of it is, is talked about, but almost more to get back to what we want to do. Um, and I think when we're doing it right, a lot of it is feel, uh, but it, it does get talked about a decent amount. Any takes on that? Yeah, I do like, you know, I do kind of air on the side of kind of the vibes, but yeah, I think like hitting the open hands is something that Johnny kind of says, like. Isn't it? Just hit the open hands. If that, that's a reset, that's a reset. If that's a, an under, that's an under. If it's a nice away shot, it's a nice away shot. So I don't think we necessarily like get the disc and like pivot our neck towards the reset or the handler. We just naturally kind of hit the next throw. And a lot of times it kind of looks like a reset because we'll have like three handlers and three hybrids on each line, more or less. Maybe sometimes all seven players can be in either the front of the stack reset area. But yeah, I don't think we necessarily like, like, oh, where's my, where's my dump? I need to, to lock on them. But, you know, the, the way we move the disc kind of makes it look like that. So I would say vibes mostly and then 
just um, a natural front of the stack or dump look uh, if nothing seems to be available. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, just a quick two more. One of them is honestly more of a, a thought experiment, but this one's not. Uh, this one's from Miles. Miles is wondering if we have any advice on balancing training versus staying healthy. Uh, any advice on staying healthy, uh, uh, like, and getting ahead of overuse injuries? Because Miles has kind of pushed himself too far in the past, and that's, you know, caused some overuse injuries that have affected his ability to play when it's uh, counted the most. Um, Rowan, I'll let you take the lead here. Yeah, this one, you know, right up my alley. I think, uh, I think it's a net, I think it's each person's different, and where you're at in your career is different. When I was younger, kind of in my twenties, I never missed a single rep in practice. I would always try to play like every single point, and that was where I was kind of developing my skills and um, my growth was, was huge. And I was able to do that because my body could handle that. And as I've kind of, you know aged a little bit now i don't rush into play every point in practice i take some practices off I, th- I take some time off and um that's keeping me healthier and at the same time the longer you practice something the less returns you have on like the actual like skill development so i think it's really where you're at in your career where your body's at i think i talked to ivan who helped me tour china and he was getting ready for a big tournament he kind of had this like knee flare up and he was wondering if he should like keep doing conditioning before the tournament so he wasn't you know totally out of shape and I said no like you need to go into that tournament as healthy as possible like you'll be ready to run in a big game and he kind of took that advice and and he texted me after he said like that that was very helpful so I think playing is at healthy is most important and then um yeah doing whatever you can to stay at that level Sometimes it's not much. Sometimes it's a lot. Anything else uh, to to add on top of that, Johnny? Yeah. Only thing I would add is like, it's something that my parents have told me playing sports like my whole life, but that I only, I think recently, unfortunately, have really started to do and lean into is like listening to your body as much of a cliche as it is like there would have been times in the past where I'd be in the weight room and I would have like, you know, just finished a pretty heavy set felt like pretty much set up on my heavy stuff. But like, in my mind, I had wanted to do one more or that what was on the plan. And I did it. And it like didn't make me feel good made me sore for a lot of days after and like, push my body to a place where it didn't want to go. And sometimes that's good. But in this case, there's no use doing that if it's going to impact your training, uh, and the consistency of your training. So what I would say is like, listen to your body. um, And like, your body will usually tell you what it wants. So obviously that's not always the case if it's like, oh, I want potato chips and ice cream every night and not to work out, you know, for a month. And it's like, obviously that's just leaning into our cravings. But if you're in your workout and you want to do like four sets of heavy deadlifts, say you're on the third one and you're kind of struggling to complete those, like back off and hit it the next time and try to work up to that goal rather than like treating each thing as like gospel, like I have to get to this. Um, And that's something that's worked really well for me. So good luck with uh, your journey, Miles. Rowan, one last question here from our good friend, Kyle Vizina. Uh, Kyle congratulates us on uh, the wins last year, last season. Thank you so much, Kyle. Much love to you. Um, Kyle's asking, have you ever tried or heard of trying attaching foam 
to the bottom of discs to change their like flight pattern uh, and et cetera, because he heard from a teammate uh, that it can help simulate windy conditions. And he attached some pictures of like this purple foam that he's cut out and like attached Velcro to, and he's attaching this to the bottom of a disc and throwing with it. He said sometimes it makes the disc turn OI and it's harder to throw, certainly harder to clap catch, and there's some added weight. Um, Ron, what do you think of this idea? Have you ever experimented in this way? No, but you know, this is right up my alley. I think Kyle's always been a very innovative um, you know, mind. We we linked up several times. He loves the trick throws. We have talked some some outside the box things. Um, I guess as far as I've gone is I, especially now it's kind of not all the rage, but I know the ADL is going with a, a new Frisbee, the Aria. And I just, I've loved to throw all types of Frisbees, you know, disc golf's aside. There's, there's not just the disc crack. That's, that's the U.S. That's the, you know, the U.S. centric vision. There's the Euro disc. There's XCOM, ECUN. There's discs all over the world. And I love to see like the subtle differences of the flight or actually physically manipulated them with the foam. But if Kyle thinks it's, it's worth a shot, I, I'm definitely happy to go toss with him. He's, he's local in D.C. and I can report back. But no, I think it's important to understand how Frisbee flies, especially at wind, no wind. And I applaud the creativity. Um, I think, I, Johnny, I don't think you've tried this either. Am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, I haven't tried it either. I do applaud the creativity. I would just recommend, you know, going out and, like I said, throwing with the different shapes and in different wind conditions when they do happen. We get enough of it here uh, sort of in the DMV. Um, but I think if, you know, you're drastically looking for some adversity, maybe you live in, like, an area that doesn't get wind very much, this seems like an interesting proposition, so... Perhaps try it out for yourself. I can't endorse it personally, but appreciate the curiosity and creativity always. Rowan, we've been going for a while now. I think that's going to wrap it up. We've gotten through the majority of our mailbag, which is great. Um, and we appreciate you all sending in questions to onethrowpod at gmail.com. Keep doing so. We love answering them. Um, and until next time, we'll see ya.